Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. We have been in this series for a couple of weeks now. We've entitled it Gospel on the Ground. Gospel on the Ground. And that title is intentional. Because I think sometimes we, we hear about, we hear this word, especially if you grew up in church and if you attend church, we hear about the gospel. And, and it's often defined as good news. And that's, that's an appropriate definition for that word gospel. But it's like, okay, what is the gospel? Okay, the gospel is that Jesus gave his life as my substitute to cover my sin so that I could have eternal life, the forgiveness of sin, and an eternal relationship with God. That's what the gospel is. But sometimes we don't really know what to do with that. We don't, know, we don't know how that applies. We don't know what that looks like on a Monday morning or a Tuesday on your commute home from work or on a Friday evening as you're having a family night with your kids. Like, what does the gospel on the ground look like in everyday life, fleshed out? So James is the writer of this letter that bears his name. He was a pastor in Jerusalem of the very first church. He's writing to Messianic Jews who were first-generation Christians. They had put faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Many of them would have been there when Jesus was alive. Many of them would have heard his teachings. Many of them would have been on that famous mountainside when Jesus gave that Sermon on the Mount, and they would have heard many of Jesus' teachings. As a matter of fact, James himself may have been there, although at the time he was not himself a believer. James is the half-brother of Jesus. And it wasn't until after the resurrection of Jesus that James realized that his half-brother Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was. The very Messiah, the anointed one who would take away the sins of his people. And so James put faith in his half-brother Jesus after the resurrection, and he quickly rose to prominence in that early church as a leader. And now these Jewish Christians... If you've studied the book of Acts, which really shares some of the history of the early church, they suffered persecution, and so they were scattered. And now James is writing a letter, not to one specific group or one specific church, as other writers of the New Testament have done, but he's writing it to really a group of scattered Jewish Christians. And he's wanting them to understand how this gospel really works. Like, what does it look like in everyday life? Life. So James, admittedly, doesn't really share a lot of the why of the gospel, but he shares a lot of the what and the how of the gospel. So the why is in there. You've got to backfill a little bit. But he's really giving us the what and the how, what it looks like, how it's lived out. And so today, the title of this message is Winning the War. Winning the War. And our text is found in chapter 1. Verses 12 through 15, these are God's words, so let's give our full attention to them. As I read together, follow along in verse 12. James writes, and he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted 
when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, brings, gives forth or brings, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. If you're keeping notes this morning, as I often encourage you to do, this is the big idea. It sits over top of this text, and we want to unpack it. The big idea is this. You have to understand the battle if you're going to win the war. You have to understand the battle that we are engaged in if you are going to win the war. Now, I have never really been much of a board game, card game kind of a person. Now, I know some of you are. Because I've been to your house and you have entire closets dedicated to them. And you thrift for board games. And you are always on the hunt and you are always on the lookout for another game that you can add to your collection. But me, myself, I'm not particularly into board games. I'm good with like Uno. Like Go Fish. I got those. I play those with my kids, those card games. But game junkies will tell you that not all games are created equal. And that different games require different strategies. As a matter of fact, I was on dicebreaker.com this week, which is a website that is committed and dedicated to board games and card games and those of you who love them. And dicebreaker.com identified 17 different categories that board games can fall into. 17. And even the author of that particular blog post admitted that that was not exhaustive. So different games fall into different categories. Chess is considered an abstract game. If you've ever played the game Mafia or One Night Werewolf, that's considered a social deduction game. How about Catan? Any Catan lovers in here? Any of you? Okay. Catan falls into the category of engine builder. And so obviously, like, the easier the strategy, like, like Uno and Go Fish, like the easier the strategy, the easier it is to play, the faster you can learn it, and the more likely you are to win because you can understand the strategy. The harder the strategy, some games like chess even take like a lifetime to fully understand and, and master the strategy of a game like that. Some of them take a lifetime. And maybe this is why I don't particularly like playing board games because I don't want to take the time to learn the strategy required to win the game. I like to win. I don't like to lose. And because they're so different and the strategies are so complicated sometimes, I don't take the time to learn it, so I don't like to play. I'm afraid that many are losing the battle against temptation, the battle against the trials and the circumstances of life because they just don't understand the battle. They don't understand the war that they are a part of. And if you don't know how to play, the odds are going to be far greater that you are going to lose over and over and over again. So you have to understand the battle if you're going to win the war. There's a problem that I see in the lives of many Christians, and that is that the battlefield is cluttered with Christian casualties. Christians who are losing the battle against temptation, who are losing the battle and the struggle against trials and testing in their life, and they're succumbing to them because they just don't understand the battle that they're fighting. They don't understand the strategies that will help them to win the war. The reality is, the truth is, that we believe the gospel. As Christians, we believe the gospel. 
This series is called Gospel on the Ground. Like we believe that the gospel is a work of God on the inside that transforms us from the inside out. The gospel is, is a God work in the human heart and life. It's him. And he does that work of implanting the seed of the gospel and then transforming us. But the reality is that there is resistance to that transformation. The devil and his friends are hard at work. The world and the culture around us and the ideologies and the philosophies that are, that are pressing in on us and our biblical worldview. And then the flesh that is constantly waging war against you is causing resistance to that gospel transformation. And so the struggle's real. Maybe you're here this morning and you're discouraged because of how quickly and how frequently you are being defeated in the battle against temptation, in the battle of the trials of your life. And I want to propose to you this morning that it might just be that you're not fully understanding the battle, which is why you continue to lose in the war. So you have to understand the battle if you're going to win the war. So here's the question. What do we need to understand about the battle? If we can understand the strategies necessary for this battle, we might have greater success in waging this war. And so I want to give to you this morning, really the text is going to give to us, three realities about this battle. And then from those realities, I want to point out three strategies that will help you in the battle. So here's what you need to understand. Number one, you need to understand that endurance will be required. Endurance will be required. Look at verse 12. It's right in the text. James writes, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Endurance is going to be required. If you think that it's just going to be this quick and easy fight one battle and you're done and it's over and the rest of your life is easy sailing, you're mistaken. Endurance is going to be required in this battle against trial, against temptation, against the testings of life. The context of chapter 1, if you've been studying with us the past couple of weeks, you'll know that the entire context is about trials. It goes right back to verse 2. Look right up the page there. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. There is joy in the midst of trials because we know those trials are conforming us into the image of Christ. So a blessed life is a tested life. Now some of you are thinking, now John, I saw a t-shirt one time that said, a blessed life is a happy life. I thought, I thought it was all about happiness. I thought being blessed was all about me being happy. I'm sorry, but the theology of that t-shirt was incorrect. The word blessed does not mean happy. It means fulfilled. It means complete. It means enriched. And so to be blessed does not mean necessarily that you are happy with everything that's going on in your life, but it does mean that you are fulfilled, that you understand who is in control, that you understand that he has a work that he is working in you so that you might be working out that salvation. This language of blessed and blessed is language that comes right from Jesus' sermon on the mount, on that hillside as he preach to that crowd that day in Matthew chapter 5. I want you to see this on the screen and I want you to consider that not all of these circumstances that Jesus is articulating here are happy circumstances and yet you can be blessed. He said, blessed are the poor 
in spirit. He said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you. Understand that not all of those circumstances are the kind of circumstances that we would want to choose for ourselves. And yet when you understand that the blessed life is going to be a tested life, you understand that God is using all of those things in your life to form you and to mold you into the image of Jesus. So you are enriched and you are, in, you are fulfilled through those circumstances. So a blessed life will be a tested life, which means that a blessed life must be an enduring life. Back to the text here in verse 12, James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. We have to remain steadfast, standing strong and enduring under the trial. And the reason for this is because our final victory is not going to come until the end. Look at the second half of verse 12. He says, for when he has stood the test, that means you have filled out the final multiple choice question. You've put your pencil down. You've taken your paper. You've walked to the front of the classroom. You've turned it into your teacher. You've grabbed your backpack and you've walked out of the door. The exam is over. You have stood the test. But then he's going to define and he's going to tell us when the test is going to be over. The test is not over when the trial is over. The test is over when your life is over. Look at what he says. For when he has stood the test, what's going to happen? He will receive the crown of life. What is going on there? The crown of life is not the ruler's crown. It is the athlete's crown. It is the wreath that the Olympian receives when he crosses that finish line. It is the wreath that, that indicates that he has been or she has been victorious in that endeavor. This language is something that Paul and Peter both spoke about. 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Peter in 1 Peter 5.4 says, When the chief shepherd appears, speaking of Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Crown of righteousness, crown of glory, crown of life, as James puts it, which more literally could be translated the crown which is life. So this wreath, this crown that is given to the athlete is something that you receive when you cross the finish line. It is the eternal life that God has promised. And then he says this, which God has promised to those who love him. So this wreath, this crown of life, it is not a reward of performance. It is a reward of affection to those who love him. John the Beloved wrote in his letter about love. John knew a little bit about that. And as John wrote about love, he, he, he shares with us that love is the primary test of a true believer, a true follower of Jesus. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so this reward of affection to those who love God, it is that indicator God ignites inside of us at that moment of salvation, a love for Him, because He first loved us and pursued us, and now when we respond, He ignites a love for Him, and that love is an indicator that we are a child, that we are a son, that we are a daughter of the king. So endurance is going to be required. 
That's the reality of the battle that we're in. So let me give you the strategy connected to that reality. Here's the strategy. You don't have to slay the giant. You just have to fight another day. Endurance is going to be required, but you don't have to slay the giant. Because there's a subtle message under this that I believe Pastor James is wanting us to understand, and that is that you will never stop being under trial. Not this side of death anyway. You, you, might, you might conquer one giant, but another is going to rise up in its place. You might overcome this trial, but another one is going to come just a few days later. Because he says that you are, going to, you are going to have to endure and remain steadfast all the way until you cross the finish line and receive that crown of life. Maybe you've been discouraged. Maybe you've been defeated because you're trying to slay every single giant. Can I just encourage you this morning? Endurance will be required. You're going to have to remain steadfast and keep pressing and keep trusting and keep running after Christ. So where do we find that endurance to fight another day? We find that endurance when we look to Jesus. There is a beautiful text in Hebrews 2, verse 18. Listen to this. For because he, Jesus, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Look to Jesus. He can sympathize with your frailty and your weakness and your humanity. He understands where you are and what you're going through better than anybody else. So look to him. Lean on community. Don't believe the devil's lie that isolation is good for you. Lean into the gospel community that God has given to you. Listen to the word. Find hope in the very promises of God and then linger in prayer. If you're going through the battle of your life right now and a trial that is requiring endurance, this is not the time to just throw up some quick ones. This is the time to linger long in prayer. And allow that time in prayer to produce in you the endurance and the steadfastness to continue going. And allow the ministry of the Spirit, that supernatural ministry of the Spirit, to encourage you in that time of solitude with God. You don't have to slay the giant. You just need to keep fighting another day. We need to understand this, that endurance will be required. Thomas Jonathan Jackson earned the nickname Stonewall Jackson in the first battle of Bull Run. Not because he went on the offensive against the enemy, but because he just simply stood his ground. And for some this morning, you're just going to have to plant your feet in that trial. You're just going to have to plant your feet and look to Jesus and lean on community and listen to the word and linger in prayer and allow God to give you the strength to endure through that trial. The, the finish line is coming, folks, and you will receive the crown of life but until that day, remain steadfast under that trial. You need to understand that endurance will be required. Number two, the text teaches us this morning that you need to understand that the enemy lives inside the camp. The enemy lives inside the camp. Look at verses 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now James wants to make something very clear right from the front. First and foremost, God is not the source of your temptation. God cannot be tempted with evil, and God does not tempt anyone. 
God and evil are mutually exclusive. They are diametrically opposed to one another. We sang about it in that final song that God is holy, holy, holy as the prophet Isaiah saw. The writer of Hebrews echoes that when he speaks of Jesus, that Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. God is uniquely holy. God is uniquely other. So God is not dangling evil temptation in front of you. He cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no man. Now it's important to understand, underneath the English language, there is the Greek language that this was originally written in. And in that original Greek language, the root word for testing and temptation is the same. And oftentimes it's the context that determines the difference between those words. As a matter of fact, look at verse 12. We studied it just in point number one. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. There's the word. Same root word, look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. Tempted and, tried, uh, tr- tempted and trial is the same root word in the original language. Here's why that's important, because sometimes we can get a little confused between those two words. And understanding that the root is similar underneath, but that the context will determine the difference between those two in the text helps us to understand the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus prays, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or Matthew 4, when Jesus was led up into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. See, from the devil's perspective, he was trying to dangle bait in front of Jesus. But from Jesus' perspective, that was a test. It was a trial. And he passed it. And so God may, in fact, allow and even at times orchestrate testing in your life to grow you into a place of greater spiritual maturity, but God will not dangle the temptation to sin in front of you to see whether or not you'll take the bait. So James wants to make that very clear. First and foremost, your temptation is not coming from God. You cannot blame God for that temptation. So where does it come from? Well, verse 14, temptation is an inside job. Look at it there in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So I want to thread a needle here. When you put faith in Jesus, your identity changes. You are no longer a master of sin. That is no longer your identity. You are, you are a child of God, and he sees you as righteous. But the enemy still lingers in the camp. The enemy has not completely moved out. Though Jesus has eradicated that sinful nature within us, though Jesus has paid the ultimate penalty and the cost for our sin so that we can be set free and live a free life walking after the Spirit, the enemy still resides in the camp. Paul often refers to this as the flesh, which is why he says in Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So the fact that he's calling us not to make provisions for the flesh means that we can, and sometimes we do. So what does James want us to understand here in our text in verse 14 about this temptation, about this fleshly desire? He, he wants us to understand that no one is immune. He says, each person is tempted. Doesn't matter if you're on the platform as one of the pastors preaching the message. Doesn't matter if it's your first time here. Doesn't matter if you're a brand new Christian. Doesn't matter if you've been a follower of Jesus for 40 or 50 years. Every one of us experienced temptation. 
This echoes Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 when he says, no temptation is taking you, but such as is common to man. No one is immune to temptation. And the enemy is very ruthless. Look at what he says there in verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed. That is fishing imagery. If, if you fish, I'm not much of a fisher, but if, if, if you fish here in this room today, you probably do it for leisure, like you just enjoy it. It's kind of a hobby, and so you enjoy fishing, and so you go and do that. But in James's day, it would have been an occupation. It would have been much more prevalent. It was not something that people just did for leisure. They were doing it so that they could eat and have a living. So it would have been very common language to see words like Lord and enticed. Lord means to be dragged away, to be taken in tow. And to be enticed just simply means to be baited. So like that, that worm at the end of the hook that's put on there to bait that fish and then the fish grabs a hold of that bait and gets snagged by that hook and then that fisherman starts to reel that in and they're taken in tow. That fish is enticed, that fish is lured. And you've probably felt that as you've been tempted by the flesh. But James also wants to make very clear that you cannot pass the blame. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So verse 13, he's saying you can't blame God for your temptation, but you also can't blame your childhood or your upbringing or those generational sins or your circumstances or your spouse or your kids. You can't even blame the devil. The devil made me do it, right? Sometimes that's a cop-out. We give the devil far too much credit. You made you do it. You chose that. You indulged in that. There is a call here to personal responsibility when it comes to purity. You can't pass the blame. So the reality is the enemy lives inside the camp. So what's the strategy? If that's the reality of the battle that you and I are facing, what's the strategy? The strategy is this. Don't ever let your guard down. Can't let your guard down. You can't grow complacent. You can't grow comfortable towards the threat of temptation. Growing up, I often heard it articulated like this, that the penalty for sin was paid on the cross and the power of sin has been overcome by the empty tomb, but the presence of sin still lingers. That's the flesh. That's where you feel that enticement and that baiting towards sin. So how do you keep your guard up? How do you keep, your, if the enemy lives inside the camp and we don't want to just let our guard down and sort of become comfortable, because when you understand that the enemy lives inside the camp, it changes the way that you fight the battle. So, so how do we keep the guard up? Confess sin immediately. Confess it immediately. Confession is a gift of grace. Don't ever believe the devil's lie that you should not confess. That's the last thing you want to do because confession brings the sin into the light. Confession is a gift of grace. Confess sin immediately, then establish boundaries proactively. Let me offer a warning about boundaries. Your boundaries don't necessarily need to be everybody else's boundaries. Your boundaries are for you. Your area of struggle and temptation might be different than somebody else's. And so Christians and sometimes even entire churches get it wrong because they start, they start preaching boundaries as if they are theology. They start preaching boundaries as if everybody needs to have the same boundary. 
So you need to establish in your own personal life boundaries that are protective. If the boundary is not offering protection, you don't need the boundary. If the boundary used to offer protection, but it's not a strong enough boundary to continue to offer protection, then you need to increase the boundary. But that's your boundary to add. Confess sin immediately. Establish boundaries protectively. Practice accountability regularly. Go to somebody who's an older brother or sister in the faith and say, hey, can you help me to remain accountable in this area where I'm struggling? And then fourthly, walk after the Spirit consistently. Walk after the Spirit consistently. Here's what Paul said. I love this verse. There is so much truth in this simple verse, Galatians 5.16. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Boundaries are not the ultimate answer in the battle against temptation. They help. They're guardrails. But the one true remedy is to walk after the Spirit. Because you cannot simultaneously be walking after the Spirit and also be walking after the flesh. So yes, establish boundaries where you need them that are going to be the guardrails to keep you on the road and to protect you from falling into the ditch. Yes. But primarily focus on walking after the Spirit consistently. Because when you are walking in and when you are walking after the Spirit in a lifestyle of, of spiritual communion with God, you will not simultaneously be gratifying the desires of the flesh. And if you're here this morning wondering why your boundaries are not working, it might be because you are not also walking after the Spirit consistently. In 2017, Pixar came out with the movie Coco. You guys remember that movie? It's a great movie. Great music. So Miguel, right, the, the primary character in the story, the young boy, Miguel, enters into the land of the dead in search of his great-great-grandfather, Ernesto de la Cruz, or so he thinks. After he gets there, what he discovers is that Ernesto, who dazzled audiences with his personality and his charm and his amazing music, was in fact the best friend of his true great-great-grandfather, Hector. And Ernesto de la Cruz murdered Miguel's grandfather so that he could have his music and ultimately his fame. So what's the moral of the story in Coco? Watch your back. The enemy is closer than you think. The enemy is inside the camp. It's called the flesh. You can't blame God. You can't blame the devil. You can't blame just, well, it just sort of happened. There, there is a war raging on the inside, and that changes the tactic. That changes how you fight the battle and how you resist the temptation. You need to understand that endurance will be required. The enemy lives inside the camp. And number three, temptation develops in stages. Temptation develops in stages. We find it in verse 15 of our text. Follow this here. The stages are right here in the text. He says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin is never an isolated, disconnected act. It follows a specific and natural process. And let me just say that not every desire is wrong. 
We have very natural desires in life. God has created us with the desire and the need to eat and to sleep. And there are very natural desires in life. So it's not that every desire, when you see that word, it doesn't mean that just because you want something that it makes it wrong. But every wrong desire, every sinful desire, will follow this natural pattern. So I want, I want to articulate here and show to you the five stages of temptation Four of them are right in the text. One of them is hidden between the lines, so to speak. James is going to use this biological metaphor, this biological development here. So the first stage of temptation is conception. He says desire when it has conceived. This is the first point of contact. This is when you have the initial thought. This is when you first see the bait. And you, you feel that pull. You feel that that. that draw toward it conception the second stage is gestation this one is the one that's right between you got to read between the lines to see this one just a little bit it is that period between conception and birth so you've had the initial interaction the initial thought of conception but now you are lingering and let me just say about this particular stage is that it all happens in the mind this is when you start saying well what if i were to indulge in this and why not what difference does it make and nobody will know and nobody will see and it's just all about me and so it doesn't really matter these are the thoughts that start happening during this period of gestation as 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 the initial thought begins to sort of form in your mind which then leads ultimately to the third stage which is creation which is where James says desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin now the thought has become an action And sin has been committed. Well, it never stops there, does it? The fourth stage is maturation. James continues and he says, sin when it is fully grown. Sin never just sits stagnant in your life. It is always growing. And so you start to become more and more comfortable with that sinful pattern. It starts to feel more and more right and less and less wrong. It becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is where you start defending that sin and justifying it in your life and arguing away the consequences of it and just saying, you know what, I deserve this and I'm entitled to this and nobody else understands, but I, this is okay for me. That maturation process ultimately ends in the final stage, which is destruction. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Death is the inescapable guaranteed consequence for every sin. Let me say that again. It is the inescapable, inevitable, guaranteed consequence of every sin. God will not be mocked. What you sow, you reap. And if you allow sin in your heart, in your mind, and in your members and in your actions to continue to mature and to grow and to take root and to take form, there will ultimately be this end of destruction. Don't let the devil deceive you into thinking it's not going to happen. It may not be a physical death of destruction. It might be the death or destruction of a marriage or of a reputation or of joy or of peace or, or, of, or of that sweet presence of the Spirit in your life, but that destruction is coming as you allow that sin to linger in your life. So here's why these stages are important to see. 
They're important to see because you fight the battle differently at each one of these stages. So at each stage is a different response. Let's walk back through these real quick. This is a bit of a teaching moment here, but let's just walk through these. The first stage of conception, that's the initial thought. What should the response be at that moment, at that stage of temptation? The response should be that you are taking every thought captive to obey Christ. That you are tearing down that thought and putting it under subjection to the lordship of Jesus. That that thought is not king, Jesus is king. So at that moment of conception, bring that thought under the obedience of Christ. The second stage, if you find yourself here where the thoughts are lingering, you're in that gestation stage and something is forming and something is, uh, something is growing on the inside, your response then should be not just to take it captive, but also to identify the root. Why am I having these thoughts? Why do I think that these thoughts are okay? Why do I think that I am entitled to this temptation? There is often a sin underneath the temptation that is feeding that temptation. Anger, that's a big one. Pride, selfishness. What's underneath? What is giving root to this temptation? The third stage, creation. Sin has materialized. Now how do you respond in the battle when sin has formed and, and something has given, the, the, your life has given birth to sin? Your response should be confession and repentance. Don't wait on that. Confession and repentance. Bring it into the light. If it continues to mature and you get to that fourth stage and you are starting to lose control of your sin and sin is starting to gain control of you, yes, you must also confess and repent as with that third stage, but now you need, the, you need accountability. You need to bring somebody into your life who can get all up in your business. Not any old body, but somebody that you trust. Somebody that you know loves you. Somebody that you know is praying for you and desiring the best spiritual formation in your life. You need to bring a friend, you need to bring a partner into your life and say, listen, I'm struggling and I've been struggling and I've been, I've been, I've been trying, I've been praying, but I just keep losing this battle and it's growing in my life and I'm just afraid that it's going to end up in destruction. Help me. Welcome somebody like that. Maybe they're in your life group. Maybe it's one of the pastors in our church. Maybe it's somebody that you know is an older, uh, more mature child of God and they've been walking with Jesus longer than you. Listen, they're in this room. They want to walk with you. They're not going to look down on you. They're not going to judge you. They're not going to condemn you. They're going to pray for you and they're going to give you spiritual advice so that you can overcome the rut and the pattern of habitual sin that is formed in your life. Welcome that accountability if you've gotten to that fourth stage. And then if you've gotten to that fifth stage, and maybe you're there this morning, and that sin has matured and brought, brought forth death in your life. Listen, friend, I love you, but you are going to have to accept the consequences of what your sin has destroyed. You are going to have to forsake that sin and embrace the accountability of gospel community. You are going to have to appropriate the realities of grace in your life, and then you're going to have to start today establishing new spiritual disciplines and patterns. And maybe that's happened to you, and maybe you're there, and listen, you are among friends, and we are for you. And God is not done with you, and he has not thrown you to the side, but he wants to redeem, and he wants to restore, and he wants to bring you back, and he wants to turn graves into gardens. So what's the strategy? 
That's the reality. What's the strategy? I want to help you this morning. So here's the strategy. The earlier you resist, the easier it is to resist. If these are the stages of temptation, then, then I want to propose to you this morning that the earlier you resist in that process, the easier it will be for you to resist. This past summer, a group of us guys went up into the mountains of Payson and we, we had some time of really just confession and accountability and we talked through some of the particular sin struggles that men often face. We talked about how to overcome it and I shared an illustration with that group of guys up in the mountains and I want to share it with you this morning. And to share this illustration, I drew you a picture, okay? Now, I don't want to brag this morning, and I don't want to boast about my artistic ability, but can we put that picture up there? I drew this for you, okay? This is the picture. Uh, probably is a little self-explanatory, maybe, but you've got two stick figures, and you've got a rock at the top of a hill, and you've got a cliff at the bottom of the hill. And the argument with this particular illustration is that one of these guys is going to have an easier time resisting that boulder from rolling down that hill and plunging him into the abyss. Which one is it going to be? The guy at the top. The guy at the top is going to have a far easier time resisting that boulder from coming down that hill than the guy standing at the bottom of that hill. Now let me show you the next picture. These are those stages, conception, gestation, creation, maturation, and destruction. So if you want to guarantee survival in your life against temptation, fight the battle at the top of the hill. Let the Spirit of God strengthen you in the conception stage. Just as soon as that thought comes into your mind, you're going to bring that under obedience to Christ. Or if it happens to linger and, and that gestation period starts to form and you find your start, yourself justifying that thought and looking for ways to act on that thought, then in that moment, identify the root problem and submit that to Christ by the power of the Spirit within you. You see, the easier and the, the earlier you resist the temptation, the easier it is going to be to resist that temptation. Now, I want to share with you this morning that the opposite is true as well. You see, sin has a negative momentum that it builds in your life, but so does the Spirit of God. I want to put on the screen Romans 6, 16. I want you to hear what Paul says to the church at Rome. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin that leads to death, James just taught us that, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. You see, there's another hill with another rock that builds momentum as that rock rolls down the hill, and that's the hill of obedience. And the more you walk in obedience to the Spirit, and the more you walk in obedience to the Word of God, and the more you walk in obedience to the identity of Christ that He has placed within you, the easier it is to live that identity. And so allow the Spirit of God to work in you to walk after obedience and to produce the fruit of righteousness in your life. So here's that big idea. You have to understand the battle if you're going to win the war. And maybe you've been losing the war because you just don't understand the strategy. You don't understand the battle. You don't understand what you're engaged in. And so Pastor James here is wanting to articulate it for us. We need to understand that endurance is going to be required. The enemy lives inside the camp. 
and early resistance is going to guarantee survival. That temptation grows in stages. Now, if you're here today and you are attempting to fight this battle apart from the gospel, you are like the man on the hill trying to push that rock uphill. The gospel is not behavior modification. The gospel is Holy Spirit infiltration, saturation, and then manifestation. The gospel is something that takes place on the inside and then starts to work its way out on the outside. And so we are not talking about, okay, now I need to go home and now I need to fight the battle against temptation and trials in my life. No, it is about what has been placed on the inside through the Spirit of God working itself out in that battle against sin and temptation. And maybe you've been becoming a casualty because you don't fully understand the battle. I hope that what James has taught us today from these few short verses will help you in that battle this week. The struggle is real. Temptation is all around. But you don't have to be a casualty to that temptation. We want to learn today. We want to learn to live. We want the Spirit of God to make application. So I want to ask you three questions. We do this every week as we conclude because we don't just want to gain information, but we want it to be applied to our lives. So my first question is this. How will you overcome sin's ultimate and inevitable consequence? How are you going to overcome the ultimate and inevitable consequence, not just of the one-off sins, but of the identity of sin that each and every man and woman is born with? See, we are born sinners separated from a holy God because He is uniquely other. And sin and God and His holiness cannot coexist. And so you are born with that sin and there is a right and appropriate consequence for that sin and it is death every single time. And so the wage and the consequence and the penalty for our sin is death. And so my question is, how are you going to overcome that ultimate and inevitable consequence for your sin? You have one of two options. You will either pay that consequence yourself or you will allow what Christ did on the cross to be the substitute don't, don't underestimate and, and don't undervalue and miss the significance of Jesus' death. Everything we've been talking about here in James, how that sin leads to death, that is the inevitable and ultimate consequence for sin. And so sin had to receive that consequence, which is why Jesus had to die. So understand what Jesus did in his death. He took your death. He took your consequence. He took what you deserved. That was not his death. That was not his consequence. He had committed no sins, but he stood in your place. The consequence could be paid for and you could be released and set free from that consequence and live a life of freedom in Christ. But you have to come to the foot of the cross by faith and receive that. And if you're here today and maybe you've done some religion and maybe you've been to church a couple of times and maybe you've even done some good deeds in your life, those things are not enough to pay the consequence for your sin. The only, the only one who is worthy to pay the consequence of your sin is Jesus. So if you are here today, friend, and you have not yet accepted Jesus' payment for your sin, would you accept that today? It's simple faith. You don't have to do anything, really. 
the, the, only, the only work, if you will, is the work of faith, is just trusting Jesus and saying, yes, Jesus, I receive, I believe that what you did was my consequence. And if you will trust him today, he will forgive and abolish the penalty and the consequence of sin in your life. How are you going to overcome it? Will you trust Jesus? My second question is this. For those of you who have experienced Christ overcoming the ultimate and inevitable consequence for your sin, my second question is this. What strategy needs to be implemented in your life? We've seen the three realities. We've seen the three strategies. Well, which one needs to be implemented in your life? This is gospel on the ground. This is allowing the gospel and what is true because of the work of Jesus to take full effect in your life. This is not about you just willing it into existence, but allowing the Spirit of God to implement His work in your life. Let God do what He desires to do. And then my third question is this. Whose battle can you help fight? Whose battle can you help fight? This isn't about sticking your nose in somebody else's business. This is about being family. This is about bearing one another's burdens. This is about confessing and then praying for one another. God wants you to enter into somebody else's burden and somebody else's battle and help them maybe be that accountability partner, help them maybe be that encouragement to them as they are struggling along the way because the reality is we all need that. No one of us here has got it all figured out. So let's do life together and let's encourage one another in this battle together. You have to understand the battle if you're going to win pray together. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for its truth. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that's ours to be your sons and daughters and to know that the ultimate consequence for our sin has been taken care of. Lord, I pray that now as we engage in the battle each and every day that you would give us the strength to overcome the temptations that come. And I pray that somebody that might be here today who has never come to Jesus by faith, I pray that today they would put faith in you and in you alone and stop trusting themselves and tr stop trusting their own effort and their own work and trust what you have completed for them. If there's a Christian today who has just been locked into the jaws of sin and they're, they're being swallowed, they're being overcome by temptation and by sin and by struggle, I pray that today they would confess and they would forsake and they would repent and they would find accountability in a gospel community right here, that they would begin to experience the victory that is already theirs in Christ. Lord, may we be the kind of church that welcomes this and celebrates this and cultivates this so that we can be the kind of church that is seeing Christians walking in the newness of the Spirit each and every day. And God will thank you for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at citypointaz. Be sure to leave a review. Subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.